0: can turn to Leviticus chapter 4 if you would. Jeff gave me a chapter and a half, so um, we're going to be here all day. No, I'm just kidding. We'll get out of here, but I am grateful to be here and to share this morning. I'm always learning new things, and one thing that I am learning, especially being here in PEI, is that if you do not have a snowblower Check on a PEI snowstorm regularly. Do not wait until the storm is over to go outside and check what the damage is. And I certainly um, missed out on that opportunity during this last storm, and I paid the price by being out there for a few hours. So check the storms. But uh, we're grateful to be here with you this morning, and uh, it's just been a great uh, time looking through Leviticus 4, and I want to... Uh, as we kind of turn and, and look at the sin offering this morning, and, and purity is our theme, as we think of that a question for you, does anybody know how to get rid or avoid a cold, the common cold? Now, I'm not asking and i an expecting emails from you later today because everybody's got their different ways to do that. Some of us eat our vitamins, maybe we stack up on multiple vitamins every day. Uh, Some of us just avoid kids altogether because we know that they are just germ infested little human beings walking around and looking for people to infest with the common cold. But when we have kids, you can't do that. You have to be around your kids. On average, we get two to three colds a year, and certainly that's a reality in my household, maybe more than that even. And you guys probably can attest to that. But does anybody know how to avoid a cold? Can you? They seem to be unavoidable for most of us. They are unavoidable. We can't see them. We can't avoid them. There's germs everywhere. You can catch them pretty much anywhere. Your kids in the grocery store, that item on the shelf that the person right before you picked up and put back, The the grocery cart, the doorways as you walk in, as you touch, public buildings, there's germs everywhere, and it's pretty much impossible to avoid the common cold. We're victims of the cold virus and similar viruses, but we're not just victims, we're also spreaders of those things, and if that's not been true in your life, then in the past two years, that certainly has been the reality of what we've been going through with COVID. But what's true about the common cold is telling because it tells us something about the human condition About us as human beings. We're inevitably going to commit sin Each one of us by nature is going to sin and it may not be a premeditated sin It may be that we sin intentionally But sin is unavoidable and we're promised that and we know that until jesus comes back sin is unavoidable first john Verse 1, chapter 10, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So every human being, every human soul is guilty before God. And the sacrificial system, in particular, the sin offering that we're going to learn about this morning in Leviticus 4 is God's way of reconciling sin. It's God's plan for dealing with man's condition of sinfulness. It is how a guilty man can be cleansed from sin and be forgiven by God and actually have a relationship and communion with God. So if you would, in Leviticus 4, the verses we're going to read this morning is uh, verses 13 and we'll read right through to 21. Please follow along with me as we read there. Verse 13, 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull offering, sorry, a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. And the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Verse 16, Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of the meeting before the Lord, and the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus he shall, shall he do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. So our sin offering... Chapter 4 and verse 5 really deal with the whole of the sin offering and we're going to see it come back in Leviticus and we'll be able to add to the sin offering as we walk through Leviticus and see some more. But the way that Leviticus chapter 4 lays out the sin offering, the way that it is formatted for us, it's different than the other offerings in that we not only have different animals offered, but we actually have different degrees uh, as far as status and and in the people that are coming. And so in Leviticus 4, you'll see the priest. You'll see something for the congregation. You'll also see something for a leader and for just a regular uh, Israelite, an individual. And so there's a varying degrees and depending on who you were in, uh, in the nation of Israel and where your kind of status was there, there were different offerings to be brought. And we will look into the importance of that uh, shortly. But this offering is different because it was offered when specific sin was realized. And we see that in verse 2 and verse 13, and even in verse 27, as we walk through, we see that there was sin realized. Now, sin is an action committed that breaks God's law, and we know that. We know what sin is. Sometimes we base it on, you know, what we feel, but we know that sin is something that we've committed that breaks God's law. But the reality is, and what we see in Leviticus here, is that God is the one who defines what sin is. That's not for us to decide, it's not for us to decide based on what we feel is right and wrong. See, we're guilty whether we realize it or not, and that is specifically the case here in Leviticus. Even when our conscience doesn't convict us of sin, we are still guilty before God. Even when we're unaware of our sin, we are still guilty, and certainly the nation of Israel was here for that sin that was committed. And the sins that are referenced here as you see in verse 2 and 13 and and 27 these sins are unintentional sins and you may ask well what's the difference between an unintentional sin and an intentional sin and certainly you would know the difference in your own life but an unintentional sin is when you know the law but you're unaware that you broke the law or maybe you don't know the law and you're guilty Of breaking the law. Either of those are sin, either make you guilty before God, but either are ways in which we sin unintentionally. Maybe we know God's Word, we know what God has asked, and yet we do not do it. Maybe we just kind of, maybe it's not that we forgot, but it's that we didn't realize that what we were doing, the actions we were taking were were sinful, and maybe we didn't know it at all. Maybe we don't know what God's Word has said, And maybe in the case of the nation of Israel, maybe they didn't know and they had sinned. There's two kinds of sin along with these unintentional sins. And those are sins of omission and and then also sins of commission. And you've probably heard those terms before. But if you were to look in Leviticus 5 in the first four verses, we kind of see these sins of omission at least partially. Now, there's definitely some kind of overlapping here in in that some of these can be sins of commission. So we're not going to draw a hard and fast line here. What's really being talked about is, is unintentional sins, and yet I want to, for a moment, just talk about sins of omission. Those sins in which we know what we should have done, and yet we don't do it. We refuse to do what we were supposed to. In James 4, verse 17, we know James references these sins of omissions when he says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. When we know what is sin and don't do it, it is sin. In in the first four verses of chapter 5, we see these examples. In in verse 1, we see something happening where somebody was being asked to testify to give a witness on whether he had seen a matter or not, and uh, he does not do that, similar to maybe refusing to report abuse or injustice and refusing to either give an accurate account or even to say something at all. Now, there's many reasons why somebody may may not say something when, you know, called to testify. And maybe they are not not called to testify. Maybe someone is, you know, would be too afraid to stand up. And there are many reasons. One would be shame, maybe complicity, maybe just flat out indifference to what's gone on around them. So there's reasons why, but there's a right thing to do and it wasn't done. And then in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 5, we see... This uncleanness where these people unintentionally touch human uncleanness or animal uncleanness, and as a result, they need to offer a sin offering before the Lord to be cleansed. And then in verse four, not fulfilling an oath, making a promise that we don't keep, or using and, and in the commentaries that I was reading, kind of this flippant oath where we, you know, overpromise and underdeliver. So, not fulfilling an oath in verse four, these sins of omission. But there's also sins of commission in verse thirteen of chapter four, a sin where we take a specific action, and it commits, and in and in so doing, in that action, we commit a sin, and that could be unintentional or intentional. Certainly, an example of this would be Adam and Eve in the garden, when God told them and asked them not to eat of the fruit, and what does Eve do? She takes an action. And she commits a sin by acting upon what she knew God's word and what God had asked her not to do. But another more contemporary example of this may be if you ever find yourself in Singapore and you're selling gum other than for medical reasons, you may be subject to fines. Now, we know that because Singapore is and maybe you didn't know that but uh, it's kind of famous that they are not allowed to chew gum and they are allowed to chew it, but not to sell it. But there's just an example of not knowing the law and yet committing this sin and taking this action and they're still guilty. And certainly that could be the case when we're driving down the road, not knowing the speeding signs, not knowing where our limits are and then being caught. But unintentional sin is just as much sin as intentional sin. So the reality is that we can sin and the nation of israel certainly did and be totally unaware of our sin because sin is deceitful and that's problematic because sin breeds corruption because sin makes and certainly in the nation of israel's case made them unclean before god and broke fellowship with god and it still does to this day and how sad it is that we can grieve the lord in so many ways and not even know that we're doing it because of the blindness that we have towards our own sinfulness and yet the one who sacrificed in leviticus 4 did so with his heartfelt conviction that they had that they were guilty before god that they had committed a sin and so confession is necessary before forgiveness and so as the unintentional sin is brought to the person, whoever that is in Leviticus 4 here, we see the next point being that a sacrifice was to be made without defect. We see that in verse 3. And in following along as you go through, you see that each sacrifice was to be made without defect, which is similar and the same as the sacrifice, the offerings rather, that we have looked at already in the past. But I want to just draw your attention to the differences very quickly in the sacrifices that were offered without defect, because I think it's important. See, the high priest was told and asked to offer a bull, probably the most expensive uh, animal of the time, showing, rather, that the priest was to spare no cost in bringing atonement and making reparations for his sin. Now, there's varying degrees of consequences for sin, depending on the status that we hold, and we we know this because this has been happening around us the past few years especially. We have seen leaders, Christian leaders fall, and we have seen um, the results of some of their sin and unconfessed sin and, and what that has done to people around them, to people that they lead. And so we know, without having to get into it, that when a leader sins, it has detrimental effects on the people that he is leading. And that was certainly the case with the high priest. And it doesn't make anyone more or less guilty. That's just the reality of sin. In James 3, verse 1, we read that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. See, sin is serious. And when a leader, in this case, the high priest sinned, it was, it was serious. The high priest was a mediator between God and His people. And so the people would have directly suffered from the sins of the high priest had they not been atoned for the responsibility of the priest was a great responsibility and it showed in that he was required to bring a bull before the lord when he offered a sin offering but we notice also that the congregation was to offer a bull maybe because it was a holy nation set apart for god and for his glory But the congregation, it says in verse 13, as we read, if the whole congregation sins unintentionally, they were to offer a bull. Now, what does national guilt look like? Now, we don't have we don't maybe have that perspective now because of our individualistic society where we kind of cast blame on one person or on one group. But what does it look like for a nation to sin? Maybe the case in the case of Joshua nine, where the Gibeonites came to Joshua after seeing how Jericho had been destroyed and and they came and put on all these old clothes, if you remember, and they came to Joshua and they and they were asking for a covenant of peace with them because they didn't want to be destroyed and annihilated. And if you read in Joshua nine, it says that the people did not consult the Lord on on the Gibeonites coming on, on whether or not this covenant should be made. and uh, as a result. Israel did not, uh, they did not kill, they honored their covenant, but they did not ask God for His advice and for His counsel on that issue, and the leaders of the nation were the ones that that led the congregation into that. And certainly in the wilderness wanderings, this attitude of the whole entire nation, um, you know, rather than following God, wanting to go back into Egypt, you know, this bitterness, this complaining... So certainly we've seen that, but we maybe don't see that as much today, but maybe an example, contemporary example would be adultery, and certainly the whole nation does not, you know, commit adultery, but it may be between two consenting adults, but the ramifications of, of adultery is that it destroys families, it destroys society, and um, a nation that has no problem with some of those things um, maybe is a nation that... Uh, is under sin, and maybe as a whole. There's maybe other examples of congregational sin, but as we move through the text, we see a clan leader was to offer a male goat, and then an, an individual was given a few different options as far as depending on how much he could afford, whether it was a female goat or a lamb or two turtle doves, which one was to be turned into a burnt offering or two pigeons, and finally at the end of of, uh, or sorry, the middle of chapter 5, but the end of uh, our section in Leviticus, we see that there's even the tenth, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour, which would be about you know 12 cups of flour to be offered, and that could be offered for their sin. Now, they weren't to add anything to the flour, but the Lord would accept anyone who confesses and repents, and we've certainly seen that theme in these offerings that we've looked at. But what a gracious God that He would allow for a handful of flour, when you read in verse 12 and 13, a handful of flour was enough to cover your guilt before a holy God. God was willing to forgive anyone who would come and confess their sin to Him. What a gracious God. And then in verse 15, we see that the sin was transferred to the animal. Right, the hands of the priest, and again, we've seen this, where the hands of the priest, the elders, the individual, they would lay their hands on the sacrifice, transferring this specific sin. Now, like in other offerings, it was this general sinfulness. But in this specific offering, it was a specific sin that they had in mind but that they were transferring to the animal. And that animal was then going to be a sacrifice for that sin. And then in verse 16 and verse 18, we see that blood purified Specifically, the high, the high priest and the congregation there, what they did with the blood was a little bit different. And as we read through verse 13, we see that. We see that the high priest would take the blood into the temple, or into the tent rather, and he would go to the veil that separated the Holy of Holies. And he would sprinkle on the veil seven times. He would sprinkle blood for his sin, and if it was the congregation's sin, for the congregation's sin, he would sprinkle it seven times covering the Holy of Holies in the veil, symbolizing this completeness, this wholeness, perfection. And then he would also, on the altar of fragrant incense inside the tent, he would, he would also sprinkle blood, and then the blood was taken outside and poured around the altar of the burnt offering. But for a leader and an individual, it was a little bit different. The blood was to be put on the horns and placed on the horns of the altar, and then the rest poured out. But again, we see the varying degrees of uh, purity. and as we see the high priest taking the blood into the, into the tent, maybe we see this idea of the spot where the high priest, you know mediates between God and his people. That area needs to be cleansed because it was made dirty because of his sin. But the high priest and the congregation were set apart, holy, and they needed to have. Uh, and be purified as, uh, as their sin was dealt with. And then the fat was removed and burned. Very similar to the peace offering where the liver and the kidneys were all taken out and the fat burned on the altar, on the burnt altar, the burnt offering altar. That's what happened in, after the blood was sprinkled. And then in verse 20, we see forgiveness granted. It says, and the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be Forgiven. See, the priest proclaimed forgiveness over that individual once the sacrifice was made. And forgiveness and atonement are both available to the sinner and effectual because of the sacrifice that was made on behalf of the sinner. The perfect sacrifice paid the penalty as a substitute for that individual and their sins were forgiven. And as a result, they could have a relationship with God, they could dwell in 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 um, cleanliness before God until they sinned again. In verse 21, we see the sacrifice was then taken outside the camp. And this was also different for the priest in the congregation as opposed to the leader or the individual. The sacrifice was burned outside the camp. And we see in the case that they, what they did was they would take, after taking the fat and the liver, and the kidneys out of the animal, they would take the rest of it, the leg, the meat, the hide, and they would take it outside the camp to a clean place, and they would burn it on wood. And this certainly would draw to our minds and maybe, and certainly to the to minds of those in Leviticus, the, which we're going to learn about later, but the Day of Atonement, where the sin was placed on the goat, and it was sent out into the wilderness, and it was cast out of their presence, and sin was taken away. Um, and certainly that would have been in mind in these, uh, in these people as they, were, as they take the sin of the nation or the sin of the priest and they take that outside the camp and they cast it away from their presence to be clean before God, but also were reminded of Jesus who was taken outside of the city where he was crucified and certainly some parallels to him there. But when it was taken outside of the camp, it was to be wholly consumed. There was to be no profit from the sacrifice that the priest or the congregation made. And Leviticus doesn't say anything about what happened with the rest of the uh, sacrifices, except for the flour, which the extra was given to the priest. But in the case of the individual and the leader, we do not you know, we don't know until we read later in Leviticus that um, that the priest would have would have kept that sacrifice and that meat to um, to eat of, but when the high priest and the congregation sin, we're reminded of the seriousness of that sin. There's no profit from certainly from that kind of sin and from that kind of sacrifice, and sin is a serious and it's a serious offense to God. And we, when we read in Leviticus 4, we certainly see that reality. But as we read Leviticus 4 and in a bit of 5, we see so much of the gospel and we see so much of Jesus in it. And for the reign of our time, I just want to flush out a few things of how we see Jesus in this passage. See, Jesus is our purifier. Our theme for this is purity because the sin offering purified the place in which the people dwelt and and where they worshiped God. But it also purified the person. Jesus is our perfect mediator. See, the priest was an example of a mediator in that, but he sinned and he needed to be, his sin needed to be atoned for because of the sin, because of his sin rather, and because of the shedding of the blood of the sacrifice. And so the priest would take the blood into the tent and he would come back and he would cleanse the spot that he, where he mediated between God and man. But in Hebrews 9 verse 15, we read, therefore he being Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promise, the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's Jesus and His sacrifice. There's one mediator between us and God, and that's Jesus Christ. And He's a mediator who is perfect. Now, a mediator is someone who goes between, reconciles differences. Now, if you're a parent... Or you, are even if you've just grown up in a family, probably you've you've experienced mediation in some degree. Certainly, it feels like as a as a parent where we are mediating between my boys, uh, certainly on a daily. Uh, and certainly, it feels like they fight like sisters, not brothers, but um, that's just the reality that we're in, and we have to mediate between them all the time because there's disagreements over who should be playing with this toy, over whose toy this is. And so we have to reconcile as parents the differences between and come between and bring peace between our sons. And as believers, we can't represent ourselves between God because we're sinners. We need someone who can. And that was Jesus Christ. And we don't have to worry that Jesus needs his sins atoned for as the high priest does because Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. He met all the requirements of God's law because he was perfect. And that and in that way he can reconcile us to God. Jesus also bore on himself the sins, all the sins of the world. In first Peter four, chapter two, verse twenty four, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus was the sacrifice for us, as the bull was for the priest, as the bull was for the congregation. Jesus was that for us, and he took on all his, on all our sin, all our unintentional sin, all our intentional sin, and He died for us, because He loved us. But what does it say in First in Peter verse 24, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, we have sung about the chains of sin being broken in his death, and that certainly is true. And verse Peter is such an encouraging verse as we read that the Savior took on our sins, but he did it so that we might die to those sins and live to righteousness. And the third thing we see is that Jesus' blood purifies us. First John, verse 1 and 7, and in Hebrews 9, 13 to 14, I'll read the Hebrews verses for you this morning. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We've been completely and wholly purified from sin because of the sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf. To use Old Testament language, we are clean, this perpetual cleanness, and so we balance this perpetual cleanness with this perpetual sin nature that we will live with as long as we are on this earth. But because of our cleanness, we can enjoy fellowship with God because blood was shed on our behalf as we read in Hebrews 9. Jesus died for all of our sin. In the Old Testament, the tent was purified. The worshiper was purified through the offerings. Externally, he was clean to be able to worship God. But in the New Testament, our souls are clean before God. They've been cleansed and purified from the guilt of sin. So Christ's death, it cleansed us from sin in a way that no animal sacrifice ever could. Because the people in the Old Testament, they had to come back. After the sin offering was made, they would come back again when another sin was realized or committed, and they would offer again a sin offering. And yet we don't see that after Jesus died for our sins. And the fourth thing we see is that Jesus' death atoned for our sins. In Hebrews 9, which we're going to get to next year, and we're stealing some verses here as we walk through, but there's such parallel between Hebrews and Leviticus Verse 22 of chapter 9, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, atonement is when there is reconciliation between two conflicting parties through some sort of act of appeasement. Now, we may do this in our relationships. Maybe when we're fighting with somebody, we will do this. We will say, please accept this as a peace offering Or we will try to extend an olive branch to that person to kind of make reparations to appease them for a sin committed against them or just for something to, you know, to try and bridge the gap between this fight that's going on. But the only gift that could appease God and His wrath was the shedding of blood and was the shedding of a perfect sacrifice, Jesus. And through that, we can be forgiven. Our sins could be atoned for, much like we see in The sacrifice of the animals here in Leviticus 4. Their sin was dealt with and so was ours at the cross. But in order for Christ's atonement to be applied, there had to be an acknowledgement of that sin and a confession of that sin. And that is certainly the pattern we see in Leviticus with the sin offering specifically. And then finally, we see that Jesus gives us a new nature. And this is certainly something that we Will wrestle with and this reality that we will wrestle with for the rest of our lives. But I want to read Second Corinthians five and Romans six for you because I think they're helpful in seeing how we balance this nature that we this new nature we've been given with the old nature that we continue to have and it continues to rear its head in our lives. Second Corinthians five seventeen says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away." Behold, the new has come. And then in Romans 6, we we read that we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Again, we've sung about this morning about the breaking of those chains of sin. The reality is for us this morning that we are new creations But we're still plagued by that old nature, that old nature that desires things that God does not. And that old nature is something that we need to put to death. A famous quote from John Owen that you've probably heard before is, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that certainly is the case if we are not vigilant against our sin. But vertically, we are righteous. We are clean. When God looks at us, He sees the sacrifice of His Son. Blood has been shed. The penalty has been paid. God's wrath for sinners, for sin has been appeased by Jesus. But the reality still is that when we sin unintentionally or not, sin still does corrupt. It still hinders relationships. It still hurts relationships between us and God, between us and man. And so now it's not just don't commit adultery or don't murder like the Ten Commandments say, but Jesus adds to that when He says, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart, right? Or if you hate your brother, even if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. Sin pollutes and sin destroys. It is evil and it's antithetical to God. But praise be to God that He's given us a new nature when we turn to Him and when we repent and receive forgiveness, and in this new nature, we now have the power and the desire to turn from our sin and to live holy lives, as we read in 1 Peter, to die to sin and to live to righteousness. So this morning, then, it begs the question for us, have you dealt with your sin? Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus? The one who died and paid the penalty for your sin. Maybe you've already done that, but maybe you have unresolved sin that is hurting your relationship with God or your relationship with others around you. Might I just turn you to Psalm 119 and also Psalm 139? In verse 12 of Psalm 19, we see Who can discern his error? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Coming back to Leviticus 4, the reality for us today is that we sin and we're totally unaware of it. We sin unintentionally. And some of you may say, well, you know, for me, it's a little more intentional than unintentional and I know when I'm doing something wrong. The reality still is that sin is deceitful and sin hides itself from our eyes and that we don't see it. See, we're so good at seeing everybody else's sin, but we're not good at seeing our own. And Ephesians 4 verse 30 talks about us grieving the Holy Spirit of God when we live in unconfessed and unrepented and unresolved sin. So have you sinned against anyone? And as soon as you're aware of sin, we need to confess it, you know, and deal with it and not give in to pride and not make things worse by suppressing it and holding it down so even at the expense of our own pride may we confess our sin to god but do you self-examine search me god know me reveal my wickedness in my heart why do so little of us beg god to show us our sin Because we're too proud to confront it, because we're too proud to face up to it, because we're too proud to go to that person and say, I'm sorry for what I did, or this was wrong, and I'm sorry. We're proud people, and yet in Psalm 139, we read, David say, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting life may we be people that ask God to show us our sin and confess that to Him when He does so graciously do that because we know that God's grace is there for us. We know it's there. It should not be as difficult as it is because we know that God has already um, been appeased in His sacrifice of His Son and He loves us and He sees the righteousness of Christ when He looks at us. So may we ask God to search us, to know our hearts, to show us the offensive ways in us that we unintentionally sin against Him, and may we confess those and bring those before Him and before those that we offend, that may, we might find healing and grace and love. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this morning and for Leviticus. We're just so grateful for Your grace in all of these things, God, as you, as we see how you love each individual, and you want every single person to be able to come to you and to confess their sins and to offer a sacrifice. We see that in Leviticus, and then we thank you for Jesus who did that for us on our behalf because we could not be perfect. And God, we know that we break your law, and we know that we sin against you so many times unintentionally. So often we do it knowing that it's sin, and God, we just pray that you would break our hearts in such a way that we will be able to acknowledge our sin and to bring it before you to find healing to find grace to find victory over it for the future where sin tries to get at us again god help us help us to be putting to death sin and to be living for righteousness god we thank you for your grace for your perfect sacrifice in jesus god we're so grateful for that eternally And we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.